Do you think about food or body image a good part of your day? Do you feel you're out of control when it comes to food or that food is ruling your life? Hello and welcome to Living Well with Robin Stoloff, empowering you to live a healthier life. Please follow and subscribe and I'll keep you posted on my most recent episode. Eating disorders affect millions of people in our country, but the good news is there is help and there is hope. And that's what we'll be talking about today. And joining me now is clinical psychologist and host of the podcast, Behind the Bite, Dr. Christina Castanini. Thanks so much for joining me. You have an interesting backstory that led you to become a doctor and helping other people with eating disorders. Tell us about it. Right. So uh, I was wanted to be a psychologist, but I certainly did not want to treat eating disorders. So um <laughs> Yeah, back when I was about, you know, going through puberty, uh, which is, you know, for a lot of women who have had eating disorders, that's about that typical time uh, people start to be uncomfortable with their bodies, you know, going through puberty, all these changes. Um, I was also one of those people that started to feel really uncomfortable with my body. And it's the first time I, you know, I'm dating myself now, but there was these ads for Slim Fast. Um, and I thought, well, you know, <laughs> let's try it. Um and that was my first, uh, you know, attempt at trying to alter my body and, and take on a diet and lose weight. Um, I, you know, that was the first of many, many diets, first of many, many things to try to control my body. I didn't realize back then where it was taking me, um, fast forward, you know, several, several years into my early twenties. Um, I really thought I was just failing at dieting. I just thought, my gosh, I'm not getting this. I need more willpower. I need to try harder. I need to do this more perfectly. Um, and I think that's the case for a lot of people is they just feel like they are awful at dieting. They just have to do it better. Um, you know, they want the holy grail of diets. They want someone to just give it to them. And, you know, lo and behold, I didn't realize I actually had a full-blown eating disorder. Um, and there's this myth out there that psychologists or, or you know, therapists, bring their own stuff into the the therapy room and they put all their stuff on their patients. And I said, you know what? I'm really not going to treat eating disorders. I'm going to just do everything else. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a long trajectory, but basically when we're assessing for depression, one of the symptoms is either an increase or decrease in appetite. And um, I just remember this one day I was, had a new intake. Somebody came in the office and we went through that symptom and you know, they were describing something. And if anyone has ever had an eating disorder, I call it Ed talk, eating disorder voice. It's just these thoughts that you have about food in your body that if you've never had one, you just don't have to people who have never had one. It almost sounds like this insane voice of like these thoughts that nobody else would think. Like if somebody tells you, oh my gosh, you look healthy. To someone who has an eating disorder, that's like basically saying something horrible and you want to go do something eating disorder, like restrict or overexercise, or it just turns you into a tailspin. And I just remember this patient was saying all these things that I remember thinking and doing myself when I was in the worst of my eating disorder. And she just looked at me and I was this moment of knowing, like she didn't have to explain anything. I was like, oh you don't have, I mean, she might've had depressive symptoms, but what she was really dealing with was an eating disorder. Um, and if I hadn't had that own background myself, I would have just treated her for depression instead of what she really 
had was an eating disorder. So, so when did you realize that you had a disorder and how did you cope with it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it was unfortunate, you know, again, dating myself back when I had it, I, there wasn't a lot of information out there. All, all I'd ever heard was Karen Carpenter had, had a heart attack and died of anorexia nervosa. So that's pretty right. much all I knew. And there was after school specials basically talking about, you know, women who had eating disorders were these emaciated skeletal looking people. And that's pretty much about it. Right. That's we didn't talk about thinks of it. Right. Yeah. Right. The stereotypes. Um, I'm so glad we know so much more now, but, um, <laughs> me too. you know, for me, I, I think it really hit me honestly, when I hit rock bottom, I passed out in my kitchen, um, ended up in the emergency room, um, getting EKGs, had a big bump on my head. It was just this moment of, oh my gosh, I'm about to die here. This is not a diet anymore. Something's really wrong. Um, that was like the light bulb moment of like, what am I doing? And how old were you? That was early twenties. Early twenties is so, really yeah. that's when it hit you. So yeah. how did you overcome it? What did you do? I went into treatment. Um, you know, thankfully I had a lot of uh therapist friends around me. Um and they knew the people to, you know, direct me to. And I got a whole team. I had a nutritionist, uh, eating disorder specialist, a psychiatrist. I mean, I had the whole gamut and, um, yeah, I was really just, I, I just went in full on in. I tried before to get treatment, but it wasn't really for my eating disorders, more for depression and anxiety. Um, and I kept flipping in and out of treatment in, you know, never, never did I have anybody that I really felt got me or understood what I was going through. So this was the first time I really just had a specialist, had a specialist who understood like um, in terms of the dietitian area um, before I'd seen dietitians and nutritionists who just basically gave me diets, you know, portion control, yes. this and that talked about calories, right. which only just made me worse. Um, so that's why I'm a really big proponent now of really getting specialists, um, eating disorder specialists for nutritionists, dietitians, therapists, uh, who really understand these illnesses. Let's talk about how do you identify an eating disorder? When we think of it, uh, as we were talking before we started to record, we think of bulimia, anorexia, very, very serious, but there are levels of eating disorders and and many people walking around you know, probably friends of mine may mm -hmm. have some sort of disordered eating i don't know if it qualifies as a clinical diagnosis but it's a relationship with food and it starts mm -hmm. i think at a very young age as you had said that mm -hmm. that we don't always have a healthy relationship with food does mm -hmm. that qualify or does the person need help if they have uh you know a, an unusual relationship with food uh, not an unhealthy relationship with food so yes I, I think that there does need to be a differentiation between like the clinical component of uh you know getting obsessed for if you have an actual eating disorder but um, when you're talking, you know, I'll ask people how much of your day is spent thinking about food, your body, what you want to eat, what you didn't eat, feeling guilty about eating, um, body checking. What I mean by that is like weighing yourself, looking in the mirror, things like that, comparing your body to someone else's. 
if you're spending 70, 80 plus percent of your time thinking about these things, that's a red flag. Like really think about that. Um, when you're talking about the relationship with food, you know, when you talk about good food, bad food, healthy food, unhealthy food, these are terms we use, right? But when you really think about that, I'll ask people, okay, if you eat the, and everyone has got their own list, right? And it's rampant, right? Based on all these diets and things out there. But if you have a good food list and you eat those foods, and then now you say, I'm good, you feel good. There's an emotional tie to the food now. You say, oh, this is the bad food. I'm bad. I did a bad thing. Now there's this emotional tie to the food related to yourself. If you really think about it, food is just fuel and nutrition. There's no emotional tie to it. There's no label to it, but suddenly there is, there's this, right. right? We've placed that on ourselves. We've created it ourselves. There's this like moral judgment, like, oh my gosh, you're so bad. You ate that. Like, I'm so good. Look, I'm so virtuous, right? I ate this. And it's like, what are we, it's food people. Like, what are we talking about? Right. But there's this guilt inherent in like, oh my gosh, I ate this bad food. Now I've got to go be good. I've got to punish myself. I've got to like make up for it. I call it negotiating with the eating disorder, right? Like I ate all of this. Now I've got to go negotiate with myself. Like, do I go exercise? Do I fast? Do I diet? Do I, what am I doing? What's happening? Right. Um, But food can also be a companion, right? Like if, you know, you come home to yourself and like you're feeling lonely or you're bored or whatever you've had a hard day now it's like food's a comfort food's a companion you know well, that's so i mean there's probably almost everyone feels that many people feel that way that it's just something or it's a source of joy and happiness because we had family dinners and it was always surrounding food i'm italian mm-hmm. like, oh, we did everything we did that was fun surrounded food pretty much when we were younger so mm-hmm. that's sort of what i i learned and i'm not the only one i'm sure so you do have an emotional relationship with food or go out let's go out for an ice cream cone that's fun. You know, kids want to do that. So we learn food as a reward. It's just, there are emotions attached to food and it is very hard to disassociate that once you've learned that over and over again from childhood. Right. But there's a difference, right? So like I can assume, I'm Italian too, right? Like I can associate like certain (laughs) Christmas cookies with like, oh, it's nostalgic and it brings back good memories or like, you know, go to to the movies and what do you get? Popcorn or, you know, go to the ball game and you get like peanuts and a hot dog or, you know, you can associate different things. And yes, yes, it's true. Food is very social and yes, birthday cake and this and that. The difference is like, everyone asks me now, like I'm fully recovered. Right. And I can tell the difference because I've had the eating disorder. Now I don't, I can go to a wedding. I can have the dinner. I'm not physically hungry for the wedding cake, but I can sure as heck enjoy it. I can even get over full, but I'm having a great time and I can appreciate the cake. I don't go home now and beat myself up and feel guilty and go, Oh my gosh, what did I do? And check myself and go away myself and like go work out the next day for hours going, why did I eat the cake? Oh my God. And like, you know, I'm consumed with this guilt. No, (laughs) I just fully enjoy it. And then I leave and I'm done. Like end of story. There's a huge difference. That is such a good analogy or, you know, explanation because there are so many people that do that women I know, and I'm sure a lot of your patients feel that way, that after they eat something, they feel naughty, bad, whatever, and they want to punish themselves. And it is such mm-hmm. a shame because enjoy it, move on and go back to just general healthy eating afterwards. And that doesn't mean a diet because you talk about um, a toxic diet culture. What is mm-hmm. that? 
So in our culture, unfortunately, it's like people who, you know, we our toxic diet culture, $76 billion industry, okay? Like to get billion, us to believe. With the B. Yes. yes, billion, <laughs> right? To get us to feel bad about ourselves. They pump us incessantly with this body image that we are supposed to attain, to look like. It's ingrained in our brains that there's only one body type that's attainable, ideal, that's attractive, that's desirable, that's sexy, that's going to bring you happiness, right? We all know what that is, right? And if you don't attain that, you don't have that, you don't have value, you don't have worth, no one's going to find you attractive, something's wrong with you, right? If If somebody can look like that, then you can too. You must be doing something wrong if you don't look like that, right? Right. Okay. So you only have value and worth and happiness if you look like that. And if you don't, you're not healthy. You don't have as much value. You're not attractive, right? People will honestly believe all this. So they feel bad about themselves. What can I do? I must do something to look like that. I need to look like that. It's awful. So, you know, the diet and beauty industry will oh, buy this program. It, reach this diet, buy this cream, like do this procedure, right? All this stuff that people drive themselves crazy trying to like attain. It's insane. And social media doesn't help in any way. I mean, that has made things only worse. I I heard somewhere, do not, it was in a song actually, do not read beauty magazines. They will only make you feel ugly. (laughs) Why do we do it to ourselves? First of all, those models don't look like that in real life. So, you know, everything is, is made to look better than it really is. And, and Mm -hmm. we, we try to live up to this standard and it's it's impossible. So you're always going to feel like you're letting yourself down. Oh my gosh. And like, I grew up without social media or the internet right and I felt bad enough about myself looking at magazines watching tv looking at billboards like I can't even imagine growing up in this day and age with this this constant bombardment of like influencers and social media and the filters and the apps that make you you can alter your body I wow it's it's a lot it is it is a lot so how does a person even begin to identify first of all and then do something about it. What can they do to overcome this? You know, this is something that's, as we talked about, has been ingrained in us, probably mm-hmm. from our youth. Well, I think the more we talk about it and the more there's awareness, then that's a start, right? I think there needs to be, you have to be aware of what's going on, first of all. And then you have to have a critical eye to things. Um, I think that's key. So like when I used to run groups, worked at a hospital, I used to show this, you know, videos on on all of this, like showing the photoshopped um, and filtered, you know, the way that all of the ads out there were photoshopped and filtered. And that brought to mind a lot of the awareness. And there's other countries, not the US, but they actually will say this is a photoshopped or altered photograph. Like it'll have a disclaimer. I mean, it's still hard because once you see the image, it's still like, oh, that must be real. But at least there's the awareness there and that makes people pause for a minute. Like, okay, that's not a real image. That's not a real person. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. What about, you know, we know anorexia, we know bulimia. Binge eating disorder, I think is a lot more common than people would like to admit. Talk Mm -hmm. to us a little bit about that. So I was thrilled when they finally put that in our diagnostic manual. It took a while. And, you know, the one thing that I think is the hardest for people is that when they get the diagnosis, they 
still can't take it in that's an illness. People still believe to themselves like, oh, I'm just lazy or I'm not trying hard enough or I'm just giving myself an excuse. And it's still perpetuated in our society, unfortunately, that, you know, people in larger bodies must have binge eating disorder. That's not true. People of all shapes and sizes can have any of the illnesses, anorexia, bulimia nervosa, or binge eating disorder. You're not necessarily in a larger body or smaller body with any of the illnesses. Um, so, you know, often hear, oh yeah, they must have binge eating disorder if they're in a larger body. It's like, that's not necessarily true, <laughs> right? Right, um, right. You know, but when you're looking at um, binge eating disorder, it, you know, for every restrictive phase, there's a binge phase. So a lot of the times people will be on these very restrictive diets. Um, and then, you know, one of the ways people, you know, stop restricting is they'll go to binging because the mammalian part of our brain takes over the survival mechanism, right? It's like all bets are off. The body's like, you're starving me. I need to binge. It's, it's a reaction to the starvation mode that people go into. Um, the body wants to survive. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. Right. When you're talking about binge eating disorder too, though, it's a lot of the time the way to distract or dissociate or numb out from stressors, emotions, stuff going on in the mind, even trauma. Um, so it's not that somebody's doing this because they're gluttonous or lazy or anything else. It's really trying to control all these emotions or all the stressors going on in the life. It's a way to like numb out. And, yes. you know, when people I, are done, I, they're like, oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, what's hard with food because you can quit drinking, you can quit smoking cigarettes, you can quit doing drugs, don't need any of those to live, but you do need food to live. Yes, so it, you do. it's one of the hardest addictions, I think we can call it an addiction to overcome. I really do mm -hmm. believe that because it's so, it's so ingrained in us, such a part of our society. It's socially mm -hmm. acceptable to go out and eat and drink and so forth. So what do we... How do we begin? What's the first step? I know you work with patients one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. and you help them to, is the first step really understanding that you have an issue, you have a problem? Well, yes, I think so. I mean, coming in and getting help, right? And talking about it. Um, it's so hard though, because there's so much shame and secrecy with these illnesses. Um, and so just opening up can be really hard. Um, so just, yeah, just coming in and being able to talk about it is like a great first step. Um, and yeah, you know what people hide the stuff they're doing, even with their therapist at first, because they sure. don't want to admit it to themselves. So just sure. be kind it's to like yourself. a mental health issue in some ways, because people do that same thing with mental health issues. They hide mm -hmm. it. They don't want people to know about it. They right. just feel like they can overcome it themselves and they don't really seek the help that they need. And mm -hmm. I think it's the same with this. Right. And to understand it's not about, it's about the food, but it's not about the food. People think, you know, for yes. instance, I'll work with families and they'll have a child who has anorexia nervosa and they're like, oh, well, we're done with treatment now that, you know, he or she's eating. Well, they're following the meal plan, but that's great. That's fantastic. But that's the behavior. Now we got to deal with all the underlying issues and why they were engaging with that behavior with the food. Why were they wanting to not eat? And that's, that's just part of it, the behavior with the food, but it's all the underlying thoughts and feelings and behavior, you know, all the other things that go along with it. How long does it take? I mean, this is a, I'm sure a very general question, but mm -hmm. in general, does it take weeks, months, years for someone to overcome something like this? 
it depends. You know, what we know is the earlier someone comes into treatment, the younger they come in, it's better. You know, if you've been doing this decades and decades, it's much harder, obviously. You've been doing it a lot longer. Those neural pathways are more ingrained. It's harder to, you know, shift those things. Um, and everybody's so different, right? Everybody's got different resources. Unfortunately, in our country, you know, getting mental health care covered and, you know, insurance paid for and resources and things like that. It's, there's so many different variables that like, you know, we can <laughs> hypothesize forever about what that all in grant is entailed. Is this with under the umbrella of mental health care? Oh yes, for sure. It is. Okay. Well, that's a good step. I mean, if your insurance then does cover that, that may, that may be helpful to you as well, but I think you're right. It's not just about the food. The food is a, kind of the symptom of the underlying problem. The food is the way to deal with all of the other issues and mm -hmm. that that you have to dig a lot deeper for. You can't just mm -hmm. go on a so-called diet and have it fix everything. That's that's just putting a Band-Aid on it. Uh, as you said, it's, it's mm -hmm. what's going on in your mind. So when your patients come to you, what point are, are they at the, like you said, are they rock bottom or are they just one day, they just, a light bulb went off and said, you know what? I think I need to really fix this. I get the whole gamut. Um, you know, there's different levels of care. I do outpatient. Um, so if somebody is really, you know, I'll do an assessment and if somebody is much more severe, um, than what I can do an outpatient, I'll refer them to a higher level of care. And, you know, once their symptoms are less then they'll come back to outpatient with me. So everybody, it's just different. It's all so individual. And is it a weekly meeting generally with you? Again, it depends. Um, I don't, there's no cookie cutter approach to this. Um, so again, sometimes people need more care, less care. Sometimes I need a whole team. Um, sometimes I'll do group and individual, uh, you know, it just really depends. I take each person with where they're at and then provide the treatment based on what they need. But you say that recovery is possible. You are an example of it. So that gives hope to a lot of people. Yeah. And honestly, I wish I would have had that when I was going through it. Like, you know, the treatment and recovery is like, uh, I'm not going to lie. It's not an easy road, but to have somebody be like, Hey, you can do this. Hang in there. I think that's powerful. And I wish, like I said, I wish I would have heard that somewhere along the way. Um, it would have helped a lot. You said you also work in groups. And sometimes I think that can be very strong for people because just like AA or Narcotics, Narcotics Anonymous, other organizations that show other people who've recovered, mm -hmm. people get inspired by that. They see, mm -hmm. hey, I'm not the only one, first of all. And these folks went through it and they came out the other side and mm -hmm. they're okay. And that can be very powerful. Well, and that's another reason I do the podcast is I have people on there telling their stories and sharing their, you know, hope, if you will, saying, you know, they're recovered. So um, that's a big reason why I'm motivated to get people on there and hopefully people listening. So, um, yeah. Yes. And that's a good thing that you do because it does help other people uh, who just think there may not be hope or who might not even realize they have a problem, have an issue. They they just think, as you said, they're just not great dieters and they just can't stick with it and need more willpower. I mean, that's just, yeah. And you just keep spinning your wheels over and over again, going back to the same thing. So yeah. uh, again, the podcast is called Behind the Bite. And how long have you been doing it? 
Uh, let's see. I think we're getting upwards of 200 episodes. We're getting close. So yeah. That's fantastic. And you get good feedback from it. Yeah, it's been, it's actually been fun. Um, I wasn't sure what was going to happen when I first started, but it's, it's, I love hearing from the listeners. Um, it's nice to get the good feedback. So yeah. Behind the bite. And where can people reach you if they would like to work with you or have additional questions? Sure. Thanks. Um, it's, I'm at behindthebitepodcast.com. I actually have a nine week email course if people want to sign up for that to see if give them a little bit more information for themselves uh, if maybe they are struggling with disordered eating or eating disorders. So do have that for free on there. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Christina Castanini. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Robin. And I thank you for being with me today for Living Well with Robin Stoloff, empowering you to live a healthier life. Hope you will follow and subscribe and I'll keep you posted on my most recent episode. Until I see you next time keep living well.